0: Can you guys hear me? Lag in the audio, maybe? There we go. Okay. I hope you're having a good morning. It's a little chilly. I appreciate everybody coming in. And uh, it's good to see all of your faces. Some of you masked, some of you not. But uh, good to be here nonetheless and to sing about Jesus and trusting him more and loving him more completely and and more thoroughly with our lives and, and glorifying him to a greater degree. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, that's our text this morning. Uh, And if you were here with us last week, as you may remember, Kevin walked us through Genesis chapter 4. And chapter 4 really kind of chronicled the progress of sin through the person in line of Cain. And we witnessed just how far we can fall when pride is kind of the governing body. It's kind of the president, if you will, in our heart. But as bleak as chapter 4 was, the text didn't leave us in despair. Right, it ended by announcing the birth of a third son of Adam named Seth, and we learned that through his line would come the prophesied snake crusher and the rightful serpent slayer. The one that all of creation at this point in the biblical narrative is anticipating. And of course, we know that to be Jesus the righteous, the one of whom we just sang. Kevin closed then by juxtaposing these two humanities. Right, so you have the first humanity, which has the heart, and from the line of Cain, it's a heart that's ruled and governed by the flesh, and it demands my will and my way. The second humanity, Kevin said, has the heart of Seth. It's the heart that's governed not by the flesh, but a heart that is governed and ruled by faith, and it's the heart that's content to rest in God's will and to walk in God's ways. And all of us, without exception, fall into one of these two categories, which leads us up to the threshold of Genesis chapter 5. And so, once again, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can just hear the text. That's how uh, most readers back in that day would have heard this text, and and it would have been recited to them orally in an oral culture. Uh, If you're not sure where Genesis chapter 5 is, just open the front cover of your Bible and thumb a few pages to the right, and you should find it. Uh, so that being said, Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in, his like, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were eight hundred years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived uh, that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh eight hundred and seven years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. When Enosh had lived ninety years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalal. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalal 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalal had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalo lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalo were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham and Japheth. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would still our souls around your word this morning. That we might have ears to hear, uh, hands that are ready to do your will, uh, and hearts that would glorify you in all that we say and do. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. So for a text on genealogies, there's actually a lot going on here. Uh, there's a lot we could talk about. There's a lot we could analyze. There's biblical numbers of significance we can kind of run and crunch. And there are comparisons to be made, especially between chapter 4 and chapter 5. But this morning, I really just want to walk through this text uh, and this chapter and just focus on what I believe to be the three primary and most prominent points. So point number one is the permanence of death, the permanence of of death, just to encourage you this morning, good morning. (laughs) Uh, Point number two is the hope of life, and then lastly, we'll look at the promise of rest, the promise of rest. So in reading this passage, even if you have never read it before, maybe you just heard it for the first time as I read it aloud to you, it's very hard not to notice the oft-repeated refrain, and he died, right? You can almost just kind of fast forward everything, and he died. And he died, right? It just goes on and on. And you couple that with the fact that death itself has only been around in the Bible uh, for the last page or two as a whole, and is sure to grab your attention. And the fact is, it's supposed to, right? Death is the new kid in class. It's kind of the bully on the playground. But before the author, likely Moses, confronts us with the reality of death, he reminds us of a world that at one time had no concept of it at all. All right, so verses 1 and 2 uh, are a reminder of God's design from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It says this once again in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, or in the imago Dei. Right? Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And so before death has ever entered the picture, you have man who is made by God, made for God and made in the likeness of God. And together, Adam and Eve together, mankind formed one flesh. It was a human couple that portrayed the divine trinity in that way. And the scriptures tell us that from their inception, Adam and Eve, man, were naked and unashamed, right? Which is just a beautiful reality. We will literally never know anything about this side of glory. But they weren't just physically naked in the garden. Their intimacy extended into their emotional relationship, their spiritual relationship, their uh, just relationship in general and as a whole. They were exposed in every way imaginable, and yet they were without shame. There was nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to cover up, nothing to lie about, because sin had not yet stained the canvas of creation. And I think the author reminds us of this because it reorients us to reality as those that are created in the likeness of God. It reminds us in a kind of big picture way where we've been and where we're going. Wesley, in his commentary on this text, said this. He says, we need to be reminded of this often, that it is God who created man. And because man is not his own maker, he must not be his own master. Instead, Wesley says, the author of his being must be the director of his motions and the center of them. But sadly, starting in Genesis 3, which we've already covered as we walk through Genesis, we have failed in this endeavor, haven't we? And as a result, our relationship with God went from one of trusting and receiving to one of grasping and controlling. And in so doing, death entered the world, and as Genesis 5 uh, is going to teach us that death is both pervasive and it's permanent, right? The reflection, I love the reflection. It's timely this morning from your worship guide. It says this, that death comes to those who wait and to those who don't. <laughs> Either way, death is coming, right? And so verse 3 marks the transition where we begin to differentiate our likeness to God in one sense and our complete unlikeness to God in Another and so verse three says this. It says that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and he named him Seth. And so if you look at verses one and two and verse three, there's a lot of parallel language there. There There's specifically three ways in this verse that we are like God, and yet in the same way we are very unlike God. So it says that Seth made or Adam made Seth in his likeness, right? Then it says that he made him after his image, and lastly it says that Adam named him. All things that were said about God just one verse earlier in his description of God creating Adam. But as similar as the language here is here between God's creation of Adam and Adam's creation of Seth, the creations themselves could not have been more different. Because where Adam was created in holiness, Seth was conceived in sin. Where Adam was endowed with glory and immortality, Seth was endowed with shame and mortality. And where Adam inherited God's life and likeness, Seth inherited Adam's death and brokenness. Wesley's helpful again here. He says, Adam begat Seth in his own likeness after his own image. Adam was made in the image of God. But when he was fallen and corrupted, he begat a a son in his own image, sinful and defiled. Frail and mortal, and miserable like himself. Not only a man like himself, consisting of body and soul, but a sinner like himself. Guilty and obnoxious, degenerate and corrupt. This was Adam's likeness, the reverse of the divine likeness in which Adam was made. And having lost it in himself, Adam could not convey it to his seed. And the same can be said of every generation that follows, including you and I today. So there are ten generations listed in our text. Noah being the tenth is still alive when this chapter ends. But for eight of the other nine, the refrain that rings true of them in this text is this, And he died. Which was once again just intended to wake us up to the fact that death is here and it is here to stay. Spurgeon said this about this text in his own sermon. He says, have you never heard of that long chapter of names wherein it is written that each patriarch lived so many hundred years and he died? Thus it ends the notice of the long life of Methuselah with and he died. The repetition of the words and he died woke the thoughtless hearer to a sense of his own mortality and it led to his coming to the Savior. And I think that's the purpose for us as well in this text. It would, it would wake us up to the fact that death will find us. It can't be out-optimized, and it can't be outlived. And since death can't be avoided, it must be confronted. Right? We have to do something with the reality of death. I would say this, that to live and never consider the reality of death is like flying a plane without ever giving thought as to how you're going to land. And only a fool does that. That's the permanence of death. And now, in stark contrast, let's look at the hope of life. The hope of life. So as I just mentioned, uh, you have ten generations here that are listed. Eight of the ten uh, die. Noah, again, is still living at the close of the chapter, which means there is one man who stands alone to have never tasted death. His name, maybe you picked up on it in the reading, was Enoch. Right. Look with me down at verses 21 through 24, Genesis chapter 5. It says this. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's a couple things I want to point out here regarding Enoch in this text. First, it reads that Enoch didn't start walking with God until... After he fathered Methuselah, after he became a dad and after the birth of his son, it's as if the birth of Enoch's son also sparked the birth of his soul. And there is biblical evidence to support this. So Methuselah's name literally means man of the javelin, which is just awesome, like for any of you expecting, you got a baby boy, don't know what to name it, there you go, boom. Uh, I would call dibs on that quickly. But, right, um, but scholars often translate Methuselah's name as when he is dead, it shall come. Or more provocatively, that his death shall bring forth death. And that's all in reference to the flood where God's going to judge sin and sinners alike and kind of uh, use Noah as a reset button for humanity. Which means this that Enoch's or excuse me, Methuselah's marathon life, like his record-breaking, still standing marathon of a life, wasn't the result of superfoods or self-care. It was a byproduct of the nature and character of God. Right at Second Peter three, nine says that God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. So scholars say that Enoch gave Methuselah his name precisely because of this prophetic word about who Methuselah would be and about what his death would mean. And that word of warning is what drove Enoch likely to repentance and to walking with God for the remainder of his life. That's the first thing to notice about Enoch. The second is this. Uh, we're told two times in this text that Enoch walked with God. The Hebrew word there for walk is the word halak. kind of have to get up at the end there. It's halak, but it's the same word used in Genesis chapter 6, we'll look at next week, I assume, uh, where Noah walks with God. But it's also the same uh, word that's used in Genesis chapter 3, before the fall, when it references God walking in the garden. And so once again, we're reminded of God's good design, that this was the type of relationship that God had always intended to have with humanity, For it to be a sustained and satisfying relationship as tangible and visceral as a Sunday stroll with your very best friend. But while Enoch walked with God in a pre-fall way, he did it in a post-fall world. right? Which means that Enoch wasn't literally walking with God, this was a relational walking with God. There was a divine fellowship formed in the subterranean soil of Enoch's soul. Which means that Enoch's walk with God is actually much more like our walk with God than it was Adam and Eve's literal walk with God. Which means we can learn a lot from Enoch, can't we? I think so. So how did Enoch walk with God? Well, Hebrews 11, you kind of fast forward through 90% of the scriptures. Hebrews 11 tells us that he did it by faith. So Hebrews 11, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, but it says this in verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was having commended as having pleased God. And without faith, which is what Enoch had, it is impossible to please God, which is what Enoch did. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, must have faith, and that he rewards those who seek him. And so Enoch walked with God by faith. But faith here is much more than just kind of a mental assent or an intellectual belief. Faith in the biblical sense means, means to place the full weight of your life on something because you are convinced of its validity. Right? And I think faith is one of those things that's probably better understood with an example than it is by a definition. And so I can look at one of these chairs, any of them in the room, I can inspect their integrity, I can fold them and unfold them, I can drop them, I can check all of the screws, I can even see that someone maybe a little bit heavier than me is sitting in the chair and it's supporting their weight, but it isn't until I actually sit down myself in the chair and trust it to hold me that I place my faith in the chair. Because as Hebrews 11 says, that's when I am assured of what I am hoping for and I'm convinced of what I can't yet see. And so, kind of going back to faith here in the biblical sense, I can say I believe in God. I can say I have my faith in Jesus Christ, but it's not until God's word and God's will start shaping the way I live. right? They start shaping the way I spend my money. They shape the way I spend my time. They shape the way I see and steward my relationships. That's when I actually place my faith in this God. That's when I sit down in the chair that's when I live by faith, and that's how Enoch walked with God. And it's the same way that you and I walk with God today. But there is one big difference between the way that Enoch walked with God and the way that we walk with God, and that's the presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So listen to Paul's description of how we walk with God. This is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so Paul here in this chapter and in this verse, he's contrasting these two driving forces at work in the human heart. Forces that are warring against each other for the territory of your soul. So you have the spirit, right, which is the life lived by faith. And you have the flesh, which is based not on faith, it's based on our sinful and carnal desires, It's often based on kind of your immediate sensory input. It's what you see, smell, taste, and touch. And it's the vicious taskmaster in our pleasure-pursuing Western world. And Paul says to the Galatians, Walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And I think Paul, based on this text and others, and especially Hebrews chapter 11, could have just as easily said, Walk by faith, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh of the flesh. Uh, which means that faith and spirit here, these two ways of walking, are interchangeable. He's talking about the same thing. And again, I say that because of Hebrews eleven six, 6, which says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So Paul just said, if you want to please God, you have to walk by the spirit. Otherwise, you will gratify the desires of the flesh. And, and so If you want to gratify God, rather than gratifying the flesh, the only way to do that is walking by the Spirit or walking by faith. That's the only way you please God. Which means that faith and Spirit are the same thing. To walk by faith is to walk by the Spirit. And I think Paul wants us to see this, which is why he uses the same word picture from Genesis 5 to describe the everyday life of the believer in Galatians chapter 5. He goes on to kind of complete the metaphor for us a little bit later in verse 25 when he says to keep in step with the Spirit. So the idea here is not that we're just kind of walking on our own, aimlessly wandering through life. Or if you're a type A personality, maybe you're a little more driven, you're just going wherever you want to go. It's this idea that we have an ongoing awareness of the Spirit's leading at all times. We take our cues from Him, and while we walk with Him, we're also being led by Him. Our hands are open for Him to lead us, and our ears are open for Him to direct us. This is what it means to walk with God. It's a stroll of the soul with the Spirit as our guide. And this is the hope of life. Lastly, we'll look at the promise of rest, and we see this in the person of Noah. It says this in verses 28 through 29, once again, Genesis chapter 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord God had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So the name Noah in Hebrew sounds like the word for rest in Hebrew. That's why Lamech picked his name. It was based off of a prophecy that Noah would provide rest and relief for the people of God, and specifically rest and relief from the curse of Genesis 3, 17 through 19. So if you remember a few weeks ago, or maybe you've, I'm sorry guys, I'm kind of going in and out here. Um, So, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we walked through Genesis 3, and maybe you're familiar with that from from prior readings on your own. But that text was, was really God's judgment towards man specifically, specifically Adam, after sin and the fallout occurred. And So God said this in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat,' Cursed is the ground because of you. And just kind of an aside here, if you're a guy, this is not some sort of justifiable biblical command for you to not listen to your wife, right? Uh, Noah's not, or or excuse me, Adam's not being chastised because he didn't listen to his wife. He's being chastised because he wasn't doing what he was designed and made to do. He wasn't leading her. He wasn't, uh, he, he kind of abdicated his role in this text. And so God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And so man was punished or judged, and there were consequences that included difficulty in his work, like work is painful toil now, and eventually death and a return to the dust from which he was taken. And Noah was prophesied to somewhat answer this dilemma, to some degree, right, Um, at least. And I think there are three layers of rest built into this prophetic word about who Noah would be. So at the most basic level, Noah fulfilled this prophecy in just a really practical way for his dad, Lamech. So Noah was born into, he would have lived in an agrarian society, an agrarian culture. They would have farmed and had all sorts of things to do on their land. And having kids really just meant having help. Right, It was God's way of increasing your labor pool. And so within a few short years, Lamech would have had a free farmhand on hand in the form of Noah. And he would have literally been able to rest a bit from his work. Because in time, Noah would have been able to do some of, and eventually all of what Lamech was doing around the property and around their house, so to speak. And so that's kind of the first level of rest built into Noah's work and built into this prophetic word. The second level of rest built into Noah's name is that scholars and commentators agree that it was believed Noah would provide a distinct and unique blessing to his generation. So Noah was to provide rest not just for his family or his father, but for the people of God as a whole. It was believed that God would use Noah in a powerful way among his peers and actually reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And we know that God does this, and he uses Noah in a mighty and miraculous way as he judges the sins of man in the flood and uses Noah once again as this kind of reset button on humanity and the human race as a whole. And so as Noah trusts in God in an act of loving obedience and building the ark, God in return gives Noah and his family everything they need to simply rest from their work for 40 days and 40 nights as they ride out the storm that sins so scandalously started. That's the second level of rest Noah provides. But I think there's a third level, and it's this. Noah is a foreshadowing of the one who will provide us with an ultimate and eternal rest. Right? Noah is a foreshadowing of the one who will give humanity rest not just by way of water for the judgment of sins, but by way of his own blood for the infusion and the reinstitution of, of shalom that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. And while Noah did indeed fulfill this prophetic word, he could not fulfill it in a messianic way. To use the language of Genesis 3.15, Noah kind of delivered some body blows to the serpent, but he was never intended to crush his head. And so while this text and these two verses are very much about Noah, they also point us to Jesus, who will not only destroy the curse of sin but we'll get rid of the cause altogether. The point of Genesis 5 is to remind us that we live in a world where sin and death are inescapable realities. And one day it will be said of all of us, and he died. But this text also gives us a twofold hope in our struggle against sin and death. It gives us a way to walk with God in this life, and it offers us the promise of rest in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we just call upon you now as sinners desperately in need of a Savior. That we are not exempt from sin and, and death is not something that just comes upon us as victims, God, but we have contributed to it. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to walk more nearly by your side, to be more aware of your spirit just in our everyday lives. Lord, that we would place our hope in you for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray in whom we trust. Amen.
1: Try to do this one-handed. Well, again, we gather around the table uh this morning and it is, it is a, a good reminder, the, the communion table is a good reminder because the, the communion table, the Lord's Supper, uh, reminds us both of, of the, the reality of death, so the reality of physical death that we will all meet, but also the reality of life. So the reminder of death and the reminder of life is seen in the Lord's Supper, and it's all seen through the person and work of Jesus. So the communion elements are reminding us not of our broken body, not of our blood, but it's reminding us of Jesus's broken body and Jesus's uh, blood that was poured out at his death so that we could have life. So at the end of your days, if you are a, especially as, as a follower of Jesus, the communion table is reminding you that that is not the end. That is only the beginning. So just be reminded of that as we enter into this time in just this simple way through this, through this bread and through uh, this juice of, of both the reminder of your death, but also the reminder of life in Christ. And so if that is you, if you, if you find your life in Christ now, this communion table has been set for you to be reminded of what, what God has done for you in his son Jesus. So I ask you to come and, and take uh, of the Lord's Supper today so that you can be reminded of that way and to celebrate in that way as well. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus and you are here just just visiting because you're curious or somebody invited you or whatever, uh, this is not the table that has been set for you. The Bible is very clear that the communion table is for those who are believers in Christ. But we do we do make this a time for you, not as a time to shame you or to point our fingers or to to kind of give you that sideway glance going, I wonder why that guy's not taking communion. We're not, we're not here to do that. This is an opportunity for you to, to go to the Lord in prayer, to, to reflect upon the words that you heard proclaimed from, from Genesis chapter 5 today, and also to repent and believe the gospel, to, to find new life in Christ. And so we ask that you do that during this particular time. the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body.